0: Hello and welcome to PathPod. I'm Dr. Mike Arnold of Children's Hospital Colorado and this is our next episode of IHC Talk. I'm joined again today by my chromogen siblings, Dr. Sanam Lagavi of MD Anderson Cancer Center and Dr. Andrew Balisi of the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics. Welcome guys. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. We have a couple of very special guests today who are quite knowledgeable on n fusion-contained tumors. They're going to teach us all about it. Dr. Jessica Davis of the Oregon Health and Science University. And Dr. Jackie Hechtman of Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer
1: Center. Welcome.
2: Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you.
1: I was hoping you guys would get us on track. <laughs> <laughs> <That's> awesome. <laughs> I I was wondering how you guys got to know each other. I, I know Jessica I met a couple of years ago in Portland. I, I know that you did all your training at at UCSF, um, but did PEDS-PATH in, Se- in Seattle. So uh, so there's a PEDS-PATH connection, but uh, but I don't know, is that enough? Do, do all the pediatric pathologists know each other, or do you have uh, a closer uh, connection to, to Mike?
2: Um, Yeah, so Mike and I definitely have a closer connection than that. Um, Pete's Path is definitely a close-knit community, but uh, we don't all know each other. I um, started medical school here at OHSU and did a year of pathology and got to know Dr. Megan Troxel, who is a fabulous uh, pathologist and also an IHC extraordinaire, um, speaking of IHC talk, and then um, did the bulk of my training at UCSF. Um, in both anatomic pathology and clinical pathology, as well as an extra year of um, surgical pathology um, there focused on bone and soft tissue, and then went on to Seattle um, to do my PEDS Path fellowship and then returned to UCSF as a faculty member. And then Mike and I really got to know each other um, through PEDS Path and specifically through the formation of a PEDS interest group called SPRITES. Um, and the SPRITES group is focused on pediatric sarcomas, and it was founded in 2018 um, with a core group of us, um, including myself, Aaron Rizinski, Rita Elagio, um, Mike, Alia Al-Ibrahimi, Jennifer Black, among some others, and really has been um, pivotal in doing a lot of um, work around rare sarcomas in, in peds, and Mike's been very active in that, and we've got to know each other quite well over the last two years through the work of that nonprofit research group.
0: And Jessica's already led an effort that's resulted in a publication that's sort of related to the NTRAC fusions and describing a new set of fusion containing sarcomas that involve RET, right?
2: So we've published um, a cohort of RET fused pediatric mesenchymal um, tumors and then recently. Uh, Also, a a case report with Cheryl Coffin, um, who is an emeritus member of that group, and a longstanding expert in bone and soft tissue and pediatric pathology with a RAF1 gene fusion um, tumor, uh, infantile fibrosarcoma as well. So a lot of work in tyrosine kinase fusions and pediatric um, soft tissue tumors.
1: Did you say RAF1?
2: Correct, RAF1.
1: I have RAF1 on the brain working on a paper with my pal, Rondell Graham, and uh, we're looking at uh, acinar cell carcinomas of the pancreas, which have, they have BRAF fusions, but they also occasionally have RAF1.
2: Right. Um, There's a lot of overlap in that group with either BRAF or RAF1. If you're looking at mesenchymal tumors or gliomas or acinar cells, they often kind of group together with RAF1 and Braf. So we also have a series of BRAF fusions and point mutations in the same kind of uh, morphologic uh, cohort as well that we're actively writing right now.
1: We're kind of spitballing around. It's and so this is what I was doing all morning uh, around. I'd like to pick. You guys can help us write our discussion. (laughs) (laughs) The the brain tumors are the most interesting to me because the choice of fusion versus point V six hundred point mutation is. Is so like idiosyncratic tumor to tumor, like pilocytic astrocytoma. It's going to be a fusion, and PXA. It's going to be a point a point mutation. But why do you think uh, if BRAF is going to be activated, or if just MAP kinase is going to be activated, why would some tumors choose choose uh, to be fused versus uh, having a point mutation?
2: That's a great question, and I don't know if we fully know that yet. Um, in the work that we've done with pediatric mesenchymal tumors, we haven't seen such um, kind of disparate choices if you want to have tumors have choices. Um, we've actually seen um, very similar morphologies in the mesenchymal tumors that have activating point mutations, including the kind of classic V600E, as well as some um, really novel point mutations, including V600D and some even rarer activating point mutations, um, and very similar tumors having fusions. So there may be um, some differences in the glioma categories and these that, you know, we're seeing the fusions and point mutations and kind of the same um, morphologies in the soft tissue tumors, whereas in the the gliomas, they really do tend to be disparate. Um, But it is really interesting to see, you know, why are some more common to see the point mutations? Same within thyroid, which shares a lot of the same genetic alterations as the gliomas and the soft tissue tumors um, with papillary thyroid. And in adults more commonly have the V600E point mutations. And then the PEDS thyroid, obviously having more commonly having fusions in a variety of the same MAP kinase altering um, tyrosine kinase fusion. So interesting. Don't know if I have a full answer of why, but it's interesting.
1: Does SPRITE stand for something? It sounds like it stands for something. <laughs>
2: um well it it's a it's, it does stand for something it's a bit of a stretch with their acronym but we um really modeled ourselves um after the if you're familiar with the liver groups um the elves and the gnomes and so we wanted to kind of particularly with the peds group kind of keep with this uh you know uh fancy, you know mythical creatures and so it's um sarcoma pediatric pathology interest group Awesome. Yeah. Awesome.
1: You guys have a, do you guys have a Twitter handle?
2: Um, Mike, do we have a Twitter handle?
1: <laughs> that's in mean, that the works. Like, that sounds like something I would super follow. Oh, my God. Um, we that's in the we, works. Do,
2: we have an annual meeting that's coming up, obviously, secondary to COVID. It will not be in person, but we have previously had in-person meetings. Um, we've had funding and sponsorship, which we've been very fortunate to have, um, and um, we've had multiple uh, manuscripts published through the work of the sprites and several posters and platforms So It's been truly a really honor to be a part of it And we've been very successful with only two years under our belts as a new nonprofit research group So um, it's been quite the pleasure to be involved with
1: What do I got to do to join the sprite auxiliary group?
2: <laughs> we actually have a new member application that um, i just was reviewing this morning to formal- formalize our new application to expand our membership
1: do I, do I need to get the uh, uh, seal of approval of a, of a um, already uh, existing member? Member in
2: good standing. Do yeah. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> you have um, anyone in mind? No. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm sure it can be arranged.
0: <laughs> yeah, We're, we're going to have a fairly open call for members coming up in probably January or February.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love it. I love building enthusiasm for pathology and... Uh, and I don't know why everybody wouldn't wanna everybody wouldn't wanna join.
2: It's I mean that's the goal for everybody that we've had so far is a lot of the things that we're looking at are super rare, and so in order to kind of build, um, you know, these great collections and study these tumors. It's really been a collective effort. We have 10 different institutions involved. And so we've all built um, and gotten IRBs and MTAs to allow to collaborate and share these great um, cases and have resources from all these different institutions. And so it's been a really wonderful collective and collaborative effort. Congrats.
3: That's fantastic. So how are you guys sharing the cases? Is it digitally or
2: It's been a mix of different, some have been digitally shared and um, we have a monthly meeting and we've even shared digitally some challenging cases that all of us have struggled with. And just, you know, here we have a hard case. Can, can we get our collective opinions? Um, And then for research efforts, we've um, Mike actually led um, a project and we kind of pulled the group digitally. Other things we've needed to share actual glass slides um, either for um, molecular studies, or for IHC, mm. and we've actually shipped those in. All of us have MTAs in place to do that.
3: That's fantastic.
1: Jackie, what are you working on?
4: Just have some cases that were Rush.
1: They're Rush GI cases. You're not, yeah. You're not, you're not doing, like, Rush. And is there such a thing as a Rush NGS?
4: That's actually why, like, we have this PANJAC IHC, right? Is because, like, Impact and Archer... They take at least a week. Even fish takes a couple days. That was like one reason.
1: Talk like, about how uh, next-gen IHC and, and molecular complementary. So, yeah, we're, we're, we're fast and cheap. Jessica, yeah. where are you from?
2: I'm a military brat. I've lived in seven states and two countries. So I don't, I don't know. I guess you're I'm from from, any, you're from I, everywhere. I guess I'm from the northwest now. My family is kind of Washington, Oregon. So I like it here. Cool. It's, it's pretty, <laughs> I like to hike. So um lots of good hiking here too, not just Colorado.
1: Like, Jackie, are you are you from Miami?
4: Yeah. I moved up here for residency and I've been in the Upper East Side since I was for yeah, I guess like eleven years now. So I've only lived in Miami and New York City. Um
1: you went to med school. You went to undergrad and med school uh, in Coral Gables.
4: Well, so Coral Gables is an undergrad campus. and the med the-
1: schools is a not separate- in Coral Gables?
4: No, it's downtown. still in Miami. Have you guys all been to New York? A lot of people. I don't know.
3: You, do you remember? I, inter- I, I actually interviewed with you, I think. When I yeah. Um, so, I honestly, I thought the Memorial Sloan Kettering job was so good. But I was just scared of living in New York. It, it i was just frightened i I'd, I'd never lived in a city like new york i guess well i mean that's a lie i'm from tehran which is similar to new york but not in the us um i was just terrified of living in new york after houston you know houston's so easy to live in so that was yeah. pretty much the reason yeah to
4: so like cut back on space but you don't need a car so that's like one plus that i can think of
3: true I mean, there's, there's a lot of advantages, I think, to living in a city like New York, it's pretty much the best city in the world, but it's just super expensive. And, you know, it's, uh, I guess, a little um, difficult in terms of space. And, um, you know, but I don't know, I mean, some people don't live in the city, right? So um, a lot of people actually like, you know, they take the there's like
4: the Long Island Railroad, or Metro North, it's called and they live in like, I guess like more spacious areas they just commute so even though it's really expensive I live four blocks away which is really nice so I don't go on public transportation which is advantageous during COVID and it also like like less time in general that you're wasting like on a train or in a car so I liked that
3: and MSK has really nice housing yeah
2: yeah.
4: definite benefit so I'm in faculty housing (laughs) Yeah, I was always, like, always
2: jealous of the MSK housing program when I was at UCSF because UCSF did not have on-campus housing for our faculty. So uh, it was very expensive to live in San Francisco and they did not supply faculty housing. So had a very, it was a big change to move from San Francisco. I was there for eight years, basically, and then moved to Portland. And I was like, whoa, I, I can buy a house? Like, <laughs> not a not a condo and have a yard what is this like you could buy
1: a house for your house i
2: know it was the i remember the realtor was like how many car garage do you need and i was like is that that's a question I, I i like just need a parking spot like i'm okay with just any parking spot it was very different
1: jackie what brought you to to sinai um i guess we
2: had
4: a strong connection so a lot of my friends are moving to New York, but then at Sinai, I had a strong surgical pathology reputation. And one of my friends who's in the same program as me, she's like, it was a six year program combined um, undergrad and med school. So she was a year ahead of me, and she did pathology at Sinai, and she seemed happy. And I didn't read right there. And you had was- a
1: pal that pulled you into residency. Yeah. Who's your pal?
4: Liz Morensi. She's at Northwestern.
1: Awesome. What does she do?
4: She cytopathology, I think, is her main thing. I think she is residency program director now huh. um, yeah, the
1: small but I went not- to Northwestern for medical school Chicago school.
4: I think she's like one year ahead of me, so might not have because you know she went to residency at Sinai and then eventually like became faculty there, so probably didn't
1: overlap. Oh, I'm like forty years ahead of ahead of you guys so. <laughs> no. <laughs> A senior citizen
0: tell us a little bit about what got you into medicine and into pathology
4: i'm tend to be i'm not sure if any other younger people are out there are like this but i like data i like science and i don't like hearing things that are kind of factual and not having good data behind it so the fact that i'm like evidence-based pathology is pretty evidence-based and especially things like molecular pathology so this reads either <laughs> or not you know um and i liked that part but when it comes to actually taking care of patients you know some people are more cut out for that than others and it's okay if that's not your thing um that wasn't my thing so it i tended to not be as good as like sugarcoating things to tell patients um i'm a little too blunt and some people are that way also just like the way that you like your information you know with a cherry on top or just this is what it is um And in addition to that, uh, it's more to the point and just very efficient. So it's also very close to research, and I'm pretty involved. It's kind of my passion's research. Um, So pathology is kind of the heart of that. So we're involved as a molecular pathologist, basically all the clinical trials that are for precision medicine, for surgical pathology, and lots of other types of clinical trials. So that's kind of how I got into it. And there was a personal connection. My mom died of breast cancer when I was 18. Um, So I guess I kind of went towards the oncologic
3: side of things at a younger age.
1: Did you know that you were going to do molecular? Did you know when you started residency that that's where you were going to, that that's where you're going to go?
4: I was actually like really and fully only into GI. Um, And then when I was, doing GI I didn't know anything about molecular but it seemed like with the way research was going if you wanted to be involved at all or do academics knowing some stuff about molecular seemed like a good thing to do and I was also pretty young when I graduated fellowship and I felt kind of just even like unprepared for that whole transition So I did an extra year to learn about molecular pathology, not knowing whether or not it was something I would want to practice and really liked um, practicing it. Mm -hmm. So it was a little bit of a surprise. I went from AP, CP, and GI to AP-only, GI, and molecular. Um, And I'm really happy with the breakdown of my practice, which is signing out GI and molecular and frozen.
3: How much do you do of each? Is it kind of like 50-50?
4: Yeah, so I get asked that question a lot. And I think originally – There was um, more clinical need in our department for me to do molecular. But, you know, it kind of has evened out now. I think it's closer to 50-50 surge path and molecular. But if there's someone who has two subspecialties, I think that's probably, as long as you're keeping up your skills, it probably doesn't matter too much because you can still do like research and whatever you want. So if your skills are kept up when you're picking a job, there's so many other things to, you know, consider. But, yeah, it's, it's changed. It used to be very much molecular, and it's still at least 50% molecular, but it depends on, like, if we're down faculty. So if someone left or someone's on leave or yada, yada. So it
3: kind of changed. Yeah, the scheduling <laughs> We've Pretty time. much the, the same for me. Um, I end up doing, you know, sometimes I do more heme than molecular, and then sometimes I do more, more molecular than heme.
4: Do you have, like, a passion for one over the other, or you love them both?
3: I love them both. But I have to say, you know, even though the molecular stuff is fancier, I still enjoy looking at slides more than anything. Um, it's, it's just, I don't know. It's, to me, it's more challenging, uh, especially like the lymphoma service is very intellectually challenging for me. Bone marrow gets very easy after a while, but lymphoma is still very challenging. So I, like, I tend to love it when I'm on lymphoma. It gives me more excitement.
1: Mike, what do you do? I'm, I guess, I'm straight I up. Find out Paul looks.
0: Yeah, I'm straight up AP. I wanted to do molecular a long time ago, but I never got around to do it a fellowship. And then I put me kind of in an AP only track for a long time. So now I just do AP. I just do surgicals, tons and tons of mucosal biopsies, and a few autopsies here and there, and some directorship stuff, too. So.
3: So what are the mucosal bites? I mean, the kids get a lot of mucosal oh,
0: And Tons, tons. Yes.
3: <laughs> for like hair and stuff? I mean, what, what no. is it for?
0: Like, what diarrhea,
1: is it for abdominal yeah. pain, anemia. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so
0: Any, anything from the kids got a tummy ache to they're not growing well.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: And I diagnosed wow. things like celiac and IBD and eosinophilic esophagitis and eosinophilic esophagitis and then eosinophilic esophagitis with celiac and yeah, you know Helicobacter. That, that
2: was my morning. Yeah, <laughs> Admixed <laughs> mixed with back. some adults.
1: <laughs> a lot of my practice is pediatric. I do I do almost exclusively GI, and uh, we got about fifteen thousand cases a year, and a quarter of the cases are Um Fifteen thousand GI cases a year, and a quarter of the cases are peds. but. Forty-five percent of the slides are PEDS because an adult with diarrhea will have just a colon biopsy or maybe right and left. But every pediatric case has twelve, fourteen parts. So wow. and, and they're most and they're shh, they're mostly normal.
3: <laughs>
1: there they're are like, quite a few. There are quite
3: a few. Uh, that's a, that's a good thing. Normal.
0: Yeah. They biopsy everything, then, then get their forceps on. Right. Jessica, tell us a little bit about how you got interested in medicine and pathology.
2: Yeah. So from, from early on, I was really interested in math and science and being a physician. Um, I, I don't come from a family that has any physicians. I come from a really rural family um, in Northern California. My dad was in the military. Um, and so I think my family thought it was pretty crazy wanting to go to medical school uh, maybe I was, um, but I went to medical school and I, I thought that I would end up as a pediatric surgeon or maybe a pediatric uh, monk, um physician and then I was introduced to pathology um, during medical school by Megan Troxel, um, who I mentioned before, and Don Houghton, um, who is a renal pathologist um, and introduced me to um, the there's a sophomore fellowship at uh, OHSU. And so I I did the post-sophomore fellowship in pathology between my second and third year of medical school. Um, And I started at university surgicals and we were treated as first year residents and I absolutely loved it. So um, I really liked the the diagnostic challenge and um, the the puzzle of it and um, pretty soon um, was introduced into writing my first paper um, with Megan, which actually was an IHC paper on PAX-2 immune uh, expression and pediatric round cell tumors, uh, including Wilms tumors. And really, um, as Jacqueline mentioned, I really liked the, the data part of it and not um, just kind of walking, walking away from the discovery and research. Um, I actually did really like patient care too. So it was a really hard decision to decide to not see the patients, but I really enjoyed the diagnostic intrigue and the science behind it. And so ultimately came back um, after my clinical years and decided to go into pathology. Um, and then during my residency, I, I still was a little undecided which direction to take um, as far as a career in, in pathology. Um, but ultimately I ended up really coming back around to those um, Kind of esoteric things in peds path and in sarcomas where I felt like there was a lot that we didn't know yet. And really, again, liked the diagnostic challenge of the tumors um, and the connection between um, molecular, both in peds path and in bone and soft tissue pathology, where I thought there was a lot for us to still learn. And so ultimately liked kind of the symbiotic relationship of, of peds and sarcomas and molecular. Um, and I decided to do kind of a mixture of those three things.
0: And now you signed out a pretty big mixture of pediatric and adult. You see a lot of great stuff.
2: I do. So I sign out um, adult and pediatric, kind of all comers for bone and soft tissue, and then all of PEDS path um, and some molecular. So pretty broad.
1: Can we talk about big panels? <laughs> I want to talk, talk about science. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but, uh, I, I want to know who has the biggest panel. <laughs> so, I I'd, I'm and I'm interested in I'm interested in in well I'd I'd love to hear a little bit about MSK impact. I'd like to hear. I went to OHSU to give grand rounds several years ago, and I met with Chris Corliss and 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 I'm not sure what your brand is called, but you have all this Nike night money. So I'd like to hear what your what yours is called. What the MD Anderson one is called, and how are these how are these panels similar and and different? I want uh, nitty gritty details and what the breadth of specimens that this that this gets uh, run on, and and what's clinical and what's and what's research. And obviously, this is fueling all your awesome research. It's this it's this really great era era of discovery through uh, advanced molecular genetic testing?
3: (laughs) That was such a big question. So we'll do a little bit
4: about MSK Impact, and I guess also then our RNA assay as well, since we're on the subject of fusion. So MSK Impact started actually, coincidentally, a lot of my career has been just kind of good timing. So in 2014, we started on January 1st, um, 2014, when I was a fellow, and GS started here. We started with a 340 gene panel, and the way that the genes were selected was that um, we had all the C bioportal data and exome data, and they looked at the important mutations and selected from there. So we had some obvious ones to pick, TP53 KRS. And the institution has had this panel evolve. So we've downsized from the exome data and had it evolve somewhat bigger to 468 since, based on what researchers are in our institution. So you know, the molecular diagnostics um, team kind of sends out an email and they're like, oh, like, what interesting findings are, like, being found at our institution? Like, what should we include that we're not including? Um, And what, and also we look through our data and what are we including right now that needs to, like, go? What's, what's taking up room on our assay? So that's how it's evolved over the last six years. So there's been variable, like, versions of it. So, for the 468 genes we cover now. We cover all of the exons, but then we cover some non-coding regions. So we cover important promoter regions like TERT. And then because we're looking at fusions, we cover certain introns that we can cover. So some things are easier to cover than others. Um, So for example, RET, like, you know, it's pretty known like where, so because fusions breakpoints occur in the introns, if you don't cover the intron, then you're gonna miss a lot of fusions. So in this DNA-based assay, like you kind of need to cover the introns. So RET's an easy one to cover. We do out pretty well, and we do NTRAC one and two, but NTRAC three was the kinase domain is pretty much too hard. So it's really hard to tile in repetitive areas. Um, but you can do things like cover common partners. So we cover EDB six. So that's kind of like you know like how our assay came to be, and things built from there on forward. So, our first software assay, I guess you'd call it, it was just software, there's no reagents required or anything, it was building microsatellite instability onto impact. So, that gets analyzed at the same time. Um, we use MSI sensor, but a lot of other people use different programs like MSING, SMANTIS. Um, my very smart colleague just came up with a machine learning algorithm that he trained for low tumor purity cases. So, this is not a software, like, not a typical one, but like the machine decided humans didn't decide what criteria the machine decided what criteria to make something microsatellite unstable there's so many things you can do with the data and then when it comes to what cases like i think mskcc is really lucky to have a lot of philanthropy because the reimbursement's apparently not so great i don't really know much about that um but but it's not so great for molecular from what i do know we have a lot of advanced cancers as you guys might suspect at memorial stone kettering just like at md Anderson. So a lot of our ones for clinical are basically some with advanced cancer because nowadays anyone with an advanced cancer, you know, like MSI would be one reason. So if like, you know, that's a pan-tumor thing to test for MSI or n um, red is still just a few select tumors. And then there's some ones that we have the same assay, this impact assay, over in the research area of our, which is in this building that I'm in. So the research area of MSKCC did the same assay for researchers on things that don't really affect patient care, but are being used for retrospective analysis or for further analysis for um, research. So dysplasia in, you know, IBD or whatever it is, but it's not, you know, a patient who already had their therapy, basically it's not affecting clinical management, then it doesn't go to the clinical lab. That's kind of how we decide, not necessarily based on reimbursement. And then,
3: do the do the patients get those results or not? No.
4: So usually for research studies in general, unless it's like a, I mean, I guess like patients generally don't get there. So when there's an unexpected finding or something in your IRB, you usually have to detail like how you would handle. Yeah. So I think the patients don't get it directly, but I think there are ways of like you know like you can write into the IRB like oh. Um, you will, like, we will tell the patient's managing physician or something. Right. So I think there's ways to go about it. If it's done in the clinical lab, it goes in the patient's medical record. And then the patient. I mean, it.
3: even without, I don't know, you know, with, uh, we don't, we still don't run germline for our heme assays. Um, but, um. You know, a lot of the times we have uh, you know, we find things that are almost certain to be germline. Uh, we don't put it in the report because the assay is not approved for, you know, basically identifying germline mutations, but we still notify the clinician so that they can go through the proper channels and they get get the patient, you know, appropriate germline testing. We okay, actually we-
4: do have like an incidental, like for the clinical part, like an incidental germline finding kind of thing.
3: Yeah. But
4: that's another thing about like impact that's different from a lot of the other big panels. So foundation doesn't use a mash normal, whereas MSK impact does. And there's in the germline that if you filter them out and the patient never had germline testing, that will affect management. So like people with BRCA mutations can get, um, you know, ATM um, inhibitors, like Olaparib or something. And, uh, you know, it's approved in prostate cancer and this and that. And there's a couple other names, by these that I don't know. But like we filter out the germline, so we don't really worry about that. And then we have a separate germline panel.
3: So, But when you filter out the germline, do you review for potential pathogenic germline mutations before you filter them off? No. So they're cons- the patients are
4: consenting to, ha- to look for somatic mutations in their tumor. Right. Then if they want germline analysis, they get genetics counseling usually before they get this genetics test because, you know, I guess it's... So the genetics counseling kind of tells them like what they're getting themselves into.
1: Can we talk about okay. RNA? You talked about the MSK impact, but that's the DNA part. And I'm I'm yeah. assuming you guys do RNA by Archer and maybe Jessica. You guys you guys do it the same do it the same way. Can, can someone teach me about anchored multiplex
2: PCR?
4: A little bit. <laughs> so Jessica, do you, do you sign out molecular or you sign out mostly SURGEpath?
2: I might, I sign out SURGEpath. So I, I've dabbled on molecular, obviously because it's my research interest, um, but I don't sign out the the KDL. So our molecular lab is separate here. It's the Night Cancer, or the Night Diagnostic Laboratory, and those cases are mainly signed out by George Thomas and Chris Corliss here. Um, uh, but I, I work very very closely with them with m- m- both my research work, but also my clinical work. So. Yeah. Um, because I, I usually have an idea of what to expect based on the morphology and, and IHC. Um, yeah. So um, here we actually have to speak a little bit. We have a, kind of a hybrid panel um, and we don't actually use Archer. So we're one of the few um, we have a homebrew RNA sequencing panel um, that, that Chris was instrumental in, in uh, kind of building up. Um, so we have, For our solid tumor panel, it has two components, a DNA component, which um, I find really essential for a lot of, as we were talking about, activating point mutations. And so for a lot of my work, I really want to have both DNA and RNA, and then the RNA component for fusions um, for a lot of the tyrosine kinases. Um, And then for some of the work that I'm doing, we actually do a whole transcriptome now because our fusion panel um, is mostly tyrosine kinase focused. Um, and so if I'm focused on a round cell tumor, for example, I know I'm not going to probably get good hits there. Um, and so um, I just email Chris and I say, oh, I need to hold transcriptome with this so I can get B-Core, chick um, et cetera. Um, other panels, just you have to know your panels that I've, I've worked with. Obviously I've worked with UCSF 500, which is very similar to MSK Impact, which is a DNA-based um, Panel and similarly did panel like tiling in of the introns to be able to get fusion detection. Um, And that's a lot of the work I've published on. We use either UCSF 500 to detect our NTRAC gene fusions um, or um, the Oncoplex up at at UW, which I've also had really great success with, which was DNA and now they have an RNA based panel, which is pretty broad, um, which is an Archer panel for fusions.
4: So that sounds like pretty like you know similar. I guess a lot of institutions are doing similar things. There are, before we go into like RNA NGS itself, there are DNA RNA hybrid assays that um, some companies make. So um, I think Thermo Fisher makes one. There's Oncomine, there's uh, Illumina has a panel. And these DNA and RNA hybrid ones, so you extract the DNA and then you extract the RNA separately. And then you turn the RNA into cDNA, so it's reverse transcribed, and then you sequence it all. Um, We don't do that, and it sounds like a lot of the institutions you went to don't do that either. The RNA-based assay that we have is based on ARCHER technology, and I guess, like, we put it together, a custom panel, and gave it a name. So we call it MSK fusion. Um, But it's the ARCHER technology, so you have the probes for, like, one – so, you have the probes for the kinase gene are the genes that are like the most frequently involved. And how this enriches with the DNA based assay that you've already tiled into the introns is that you then have universal primers. So, you catch whatever's going on with the kinase gene, but then it will detect whatever is next to it. So, if there's a novel versus known, so you can tile in, for example, NTRAC3. And it'll give you ETV6, but it'll also give you, like, EML 4 or just whatever other five-prime partner that you weren't expecting that might be novel. And that's the unique part about how Arger works. Um, The only downside to RNA-based NGS that I'm sure a lot of people hear is that when the tumor wasn't processed very well or it was older, RNA is pretty labile and it just degrades a little easier. Whereas DNA is, like, pretty tough stuff can like step on the tissue and it's still going to be okay but like with rna a few years old and it's pretty hard to get um decent quality rna for it so
3: very high maintenance
4: yes stuff too there's other like ways i think in asia it's more common um to do like pcr based RNA assays to look for specifically for egp 6 ntrac 3 and not an NGS panel. Um, yeah. But I think in the U.S., we're moving when we look for fusions more towards NGS in general, when we take out RNA for solid tumors. Um, and then, as Jessica mentioned, there's also like just, you know, another, the other DNA-based assays, FISH, and that tells you if there's a rearrangement, but not necessarily a fusion.
0: We haven't really talked about NTRAC itself yet. Um, yeah. So as, as Andrew mentioned, you, you guys both have recent papers on the topic. Jessica's paper in AJSP in 2019 was actually recently recognized by the Society for Pediatric Pathology with the Lottie Strauss Award. Congratulations. The
3: Congratulations. Top publication
0: by a society member under 40. And Jackie, you had a recent paper in Modern Pathology, so you guys are both huge experts on the NTRAC family. Give us a kind of overview of what's important about the NTRK fused tumors and what makes them special.
2: So I can introduce the topic, and I'm sure Jackie can expand. Um, so NTRK um, is really a family of three d- genes that encode for um, tropomyosin um, uh, family of proteins, uh, receptor kinases. So there's NTRK uh, one, two, and three, which encode for TRAC A, B, and C, um, and um, they, you know, during embryogenesis are important for uh, development of uh, neural pathways and cell signaling and development. Um, but really, they've become um, really an area of interest in oncogenesis. Um, they were first discovered in the 1980s in colorectal cancer, so more of Jackie's area of interest. Um, but really have become of greater intrigue with the development of two FDA-approved um, Uh, TREC inhibitors. So now we have the ability to really treat these tumors with TREC inhibitors. Um, And they they are, um, TREC gene fusions are present in a variety of tumors, um, including in high frequency and some rarer tumor types, including some of my interests in pediatric mesenchymal tumors, including infantile fibrosarcoma, some other pediatric and adult trech rearranged um, tumors, as well as uh, congenital lesoblastic nephromas um, and secretory carcinomas, both of the breast and of the salivary gland and skin. And then of intermediate frequency tumors, including gliomas, Um, papillary thyroid carcinoma. Um, And then there are also low occurrences of TREC gene fusions in a variety of cancer types, including, as I mentioned before, colorectal cancers. Um, Melanoma is actually of kind of intermediate gene um, frequency um and a variety of other carcinomas et cetera. and so it's um another important one to probably mention is lung cancer as well and so it's become really exciting um in the last don't few years don't forget heme. sorry and heme malignancies <laughs> as well um so it's it's no. just i become... this is like
3: my thing i always have like my little heme interruption in the show so well
2: actually i
1: i have a question about that uh, Be. I was, we, we, we had, uh, Trek was, uh, one of the analytes that we challenged in a, in a rotating markers, uh, cap IC uh, survey this past, this past year. And I was writing the discussion, um, and I was having trouble finding, I didn't know about melanoma, but I found, I found it, you know, there's a couple, like, one of the papers is from Jackie. I think she looked at maybe 30,000 tumors in MSK, in MSK impact and described the frequency Just
2: 30,
1: of track. And there's another one. It was from Karis or, or some other reference lab like that. And I found the melanoma and I was wondering, I was having trouble finding, and I, Jessica's description is perfect. And it's like, it's this and this, and then it's 0.2% of everything. <laughs> but I was having trouble finding a systematic evaluation of heme tumors. Are there specific heme tumors that are, that are more likely to be track rearranged or is it just rare across?
3: It's, it's way? rare, random. Actually, you know, um, Justin and Omar have a paper on this, but I think Jackie is a coauthor on, right? Um, I am I've I yeah. remember
4: an IHC request from, from Justin Taylor.
3: Yeah. Yes. Yeah. He's so, a- um, I mean, it's like random rare tumors, like Ertheim Chester uh, has some uh, entric fusions. There are AMLs that have, you know, obviously like the ETV6 uh, fusion, um, but, but it's, it's not like a, a recurrent abnormality in any type of specific heme tumor, but it does happen, and mostly on the myeloid uh, side.
2: Cool. Thank you. So, guys. Like these pivotal moments in the timeline of NTRAC. And there's like the first discoveries of fusions in colorectal and papillary cancer in the 80s. And then really like ETB6, NTRAC3 in 1998 with Paul Sorensen's group and then Brian Rubin. And I find like that's a pivotal moment because it occurred in a high frequency tumor. So it could be of diagnostic use, right? So in both infantile fibrosarcoma and CMN, it occurred at such a high frequency that we finally had a diagnostic anchor. And then, really, there was kind of again this period of relative like stagnancy. But then there was NGS, the first clinical NGS test available in, in 2014, and then the first clinical trials of, the, of Larotrectinib and Entrectinib in 2015, 2016. And now there's just been this explosion in literature around Entrect because now not only is it of diagnostic interest, but it's of predictive value for a therapeutic yeah. purpose. And so Ntrex just, you know, taken off as something of interest and to be able to screen for it and to test for it either by IHC or by NGS or other methods.
1: Can we talk about can we talk about IHC? It's IHC no, talk. No. <laughs> tell, tell us about so I'm interested in uh Trek Pantrek IHC a little bit, although I gotta say I found it to be kind of uh, a little bit disappointing. Um, and, and uh, I know mostly about the the EPR 17341, but I was wondering if anybody has experience with the, uh, with this other clone. I think it's a, I wrote it down, uh, a7H6R, and it's interesting. So there's, and you mentioned the two agents, you mentioned uh, larotrectinib, and it seems like all the larotrectinib trials use the uh, epitomics. Antibody, and that the entrectinib ones use the the other this other antibody that I that I haven't uh, played with yet. Um, do you, does anybody have in, any insight as to why these antibodies might be less sensitive in entrect three rearranged tumors, which is a which is a bummer. Um, I was all excited to have the marker for. We've got a good head and neck group here, and they want a marker for secretory carcinoma, you know, erstwhile memory analog secretory carcinoma. Now it's just secretory carcinoma. And I, I started optimizing this antibody a year and a half ago. And the first block of secretory carcinoma, I'm like, oh, I'll optimize it in secretory carcinoma. And it was negative. And then I cranked it and cranked it and cranked it and got it to be positive and that tumor and everything, everything else. So
4: (laughs) (laughs) it is definitely lower in n 3 and I don't think we have the functional studies to show why, but that's probably what needs to be done. If anyone cared enough about this particular subject, so you'd have to partner with someone. It might be that, um, it's happening so fast. So, you know, signaling in the cell can occur really quickly. Or it can occur, yeah, so it's, like, happening really quickly and might not be, you know, just seen, or at lower levels, like, maybe it needs, the fusions kind of, like, make the RNA and protein, like, you know, at lower levels than other. So these are, like, theories, but it hasn't been proven at all. I would say that if you're, like, if you're looking for adv 6 NTRAC 3 like, don't, like, because, you know, the IHC is going to be somewhere between 50 and 80% sensitive, which is not nearly enough for n 3 you just skip straight to fish, which is like pretty fast, and use it for that. I think the IHC is like a better screen for like a lung or colon adenocarcinoma. So, something that's driven by the MAPK pathway. So, you know, that often has like KRAS, BRAF, EGFR mutations, but it's like wild type for those. Um, or in colon cancer, when it's MSI high, it's often enriched in kinase fusions if there's no BRAF um, mutation. So, it's better for these kinds of MAPK driven cancers. Uh, and, um, when you are kind of looking for more of a broad screen, if you're s- like specifically looking for something driven by ETP six and track three, it wouldn't even bother. In addition to that, it's not very specific in, um, things that have neural differentiation or smooth muscle just because it's like, it's not that there's something wrong with the IHC. It's
1: just, they express that. Herbs. Yeah. I, you just, if you just run a, you know, uh, multi-tissue control. It's expressed in the myenteric plexus of the colon, for for example. Um, do you know? So I know in in uh, Jessica's paper that she won an award for um, that she used. Did you use TREK A immunohistochemistry as as well? Why did you use TREK A instead of TREK C? Um, since you were looking for mainly ETV six NTREC uh NTREC three. Well, I, we had a case report that we published because we had a we had a NTREC two fusion that we discovered and we were playing around with the Trek B immunostain for, for a while. I was I was wondering if if we could get to the prop get to the bottom of the PANTREC being insensitive in Tre in N 3 rearranged tumors if we had a trec C antibody so how did you come how, how did you come across this trec uh, sure. a
2: so that's in a different AJSP paper um, than the one I won an award for um, that that's um, our paper that we wrote just on the immunohistochemistry um, and that we looked at the trec a and it's in in part we were again, playing with antibodies um, stemming from the, the first few cases that I really became interested in TREC were kind of incidental discoveries based on morphology. Um, by We looked at the tumors, and they all looked the, kind of the same and started sequencing them, and they happened to be n one tumors. Oh, they were. And so we were playing with uh, TREC-A because we were at first investigating six um, pediatric n one rearranged tumors, and so we were going after n one specifically. And so Bought a TREC A antibody to play with. Um, and then we ended up expanding the series um, uh, to that cohort that was in the um, second AJSP paper of uh, the expanded pediatric rearranged mesenchymal tumors that um, included conventional uh, canonical rearranged ETB6 and TREC3 and uh, a host of a variety of different rearrangements. So it, it happens that we were using Trek A kind of based on serendipity that our first six cases were Trek uh check one rearranged tumors is
1: it specific or did it did no it react with, no it reacted with other ones yeah. correct it had the a lot a of reactivity is pan ish like, yes I, like i i don't know what the <laughs> immunogen is for it's all it's all you know it's uh trade secret right you go to the you go to the website and you say immun immunogen is proprietary it's to the blank term <laughs> Sometimes they'll say oh it's between amino acid 1 and 4000.
2: <laughs> actually if you go to the appcam website it calls it pantrack but then underneath it you have to search to actually see that it's actually protein for just track A. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm currently writing the re- or revising the path outlines for pantrack and so I was recent, my resident was helping me with it was like isn't this pantrack and I was like no no that's actually the, the clone for <laughs> <laughs> just <laughs> track A. Yeah. But you have to search for it.
4: For track, I think it's supposed to be in a high area of homology.
2: Sure. Okay. So yeah.
4: Yeah. For the kinase, basically for any IHC to work on a fusion, on a kinase fusion, almost all kinase fusions involve the kinase fusion being, as you guys know, like in the three prime end. So usually, like, I don't know, they either do like something like, oh, the immunogen is somewhere near the C terminal or it's in the kinase domain. exists for track A but I don't think for N-track 3 when we were looking back in like 2017 originally like validating this I don't think that existed like an N-track 3 3 prime you know like C terminal-ish antibody so if you try to do it to the 5 prime that part of the gene is not included in the fusion so that's not useful so if it said like amino acid 1 to whatever I'd just be like all right, I'm not even going to bother with this (laughs) Um, but yeah, so the Pandrac one kinda has to be towards totally the kinase domain.
1: And if I, I like find a TREC-C kinase domain uh, antibody, can we do can we do the study? Can we can, can we see if we can make I guess that's so the higher? That's desirable. I still want a, I still want an IHC for secretory carcinoma. There is
2: a historic paper out there, I can't remember which it is, that used a, a TREX-C antibody, yeah. and it was terrible. I have to find the paper. <laughs> it was terrible. I it didn't right. go after it.
1: But just because the – yeah, if you find that paper – Yeah, I'll find it. It. it
2: was an older paper from like the 19 – like early IHC paper.
1: Because uh, uh, sometimes IHC are terrible not because the primary animal. Right.
2: Um, We've actually been pretty successful. I know that uh, our papers have a different sensitivity and specificity for TREC and TREC-3. We've actually had pretty good luck. I've had recently in the last month two secretory carcinomas and we've seen them both um, and they've been positive. Um, It is really wimpy with TREC-3, but they've definitely been positive.
4: Um, In the modern like it's often like three cells in the corner, right? yeah nuclear you're like done
2: because exactly
4: so that's the thing is like it's not specific but like if you see it should it's in the cytoplasm so if it's in the cytoplasm of like a breast cancer or like you're you know just sarcoma then like it's something that's not specific but when it's in the nucleus you know it's a scene even if it's a few cells it's pretty usually like there's it's real
2: when i um when we titrated our antibody here i used tumor instead of normal tissues. And I found that very helpful so I could make sure I had some nice nuclear staining for a TRK3 IFS um, and then had an NTREC one tumor and titrated between the two so that I wasn't knock your socks off with the TRK1 tumor, which can be just amazingly beautifully cytoplasmic, strong diffuse. And then the, um, the TRK3 had some good nuclear staining as well. And then a negative control, which was just normal tissue that wasn't staining.
4: Smart, like to use something that was like had real, but was, you know, like an n 3 weaker, more
1: focal. Are you IHC lab director, Jessica?
2: I I am I'm the histology medical director as part of my search path responsibilities, but we actually have a separate IHC um, medical director. But I brought it up as a research um, test as soon as I came here from UCSF. And then we brought it up clinically pretty soon after. And I was responsible for that um, validation process because it was my baby.
1: It's hard. <laughs> I spent a long time. I spent, yes. uh, yeah. Six months, at least six months, you know, rare antigen was a problem. Starting with the secretory carcinoma that should have been negative was a, was a, was a big problem. And yeah, a lot of Sort of, I had this unrealistic expectation as to sensitivity, based yeah. on some initial publications, and then it was okay that it was negative in a few, few cases. We did a lot of parallel testing. We did parallel testing with Brigham and with NeoGenomics to to get it up and up and going. They're not all uh, they're not all Pax8. Some of them some of them are really 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 difficult to get up and running.
2: Yeah, I think like I mean my. I always tell people every test is, like you said earlier, every test has its advantages and disadvantages, and every test is just a test, right? So just keeping that in mind that when you're doing the IHC, that you keep the morphology and any molecular tests in mind. And so I've definitely had, you know, cases that I thought were going to be n tumors, and they ended up being another tyrosine kinase because I had some blushy stain and S100 and CD34, and I was like, oh, it could be. Um, and then, it ended up in a like, I had a recent case that I think is in this family of tumors, and it had a, a GAB1 able fusion. And we were able to treat this um, patient with a imatinib, which is fantastic. Um, on, but on the other hand, we had a blazingly positive um, case with NCHEC, and it was sequenced somewhere else, and it was negative for our gene rearrangement. And um, the concern was. You know, we missed something because the, the IHC was so positive, and we resequenced it here, and we're able to find an LMNA and trec one gene rearrangement. So, you know, every whether it's IHC or sequencing, it's just a test, and um, putting the whole piece of the puzzle together with morphology, I think, is so important.
0: So, you've described in a couple of papers, you've described the morphology of the NTREC mesenchymal tumors in kids. Can you tell us a little bit about the morphology?
2: As you know, as an expert yourself, Mike, they can have a range of morphologies, Um, you know, infantile fibrosacuma, the classic morphologies are either um, kind of primitive spindle distellate cells and either a collagenized or myxoid matrix. Other patterns you can see are along fascicles of spindle cells and a herringbone-like pattern. Often you can see hemangioparasitoma-like vascular pattern. Um, other patterns that we've seen um, are more um, hypocellular areas kind of reaching out in a fibromatosis-like pattern in fibroadipose tissue. We've seen tumors with this very distinct perivascular hyalinosis. Um, occasional tumors have had um, nuclear palisading um, reminiscent of varicade bodies, and a subset of tumors probably have been missing diagnosed as Schwannema. Um, other cell cases have been very hypercellular um, and um, reminiscent of um, malignant peripheral nerve sheath tumor. So that one of the features in of itself that is helpful is that there's a lot of intratumoral heterogeneity. So you can see m- many of these tumors having all of these morphologies in one tumor.
3: So are any of the morphologic features um are the pathognomonic for this? Like if you see it, you know that it's going to be rearranged or not?
2: I think most of us in the soft tissue uh, land, you know, we're pretty good at recognizing infantile fibrosarcoma. So a lot of it is the clinical presentation plus these patterns. And we're like, oh, that's going to be infantile fibrosarcoma.
0: So obviously in kids, you can have some morphologic clues about these spindly tumors. How does it work in adults with carcinomas and other and aside from secretory carcinoma, other like colon cancer, is there anything specific to a colon cancer that would make you think about entrect?
4: Um, yes. So for colon cancer, they're usually MSI high, uh, and also they are MLH1 promoter hypermethylated and BRAF wild type. So
1: RAS wild type, right?
4: Yeah. So they RAS BRAF wild type, um, and then specifically, just like BRAF V600E. Then finding these, it's not just NTRAC, but also just kinase fusions in general are enriched. So, around 40% of colon cancers that are MLH1 hypermethylated and don't have BRAF or kinase um, mutations, those have kinase fusions. So, they're highly enriched uh, in those. And uh, I guess when it comes to NTRAC, it was something like when I reviewed the three papers that looked at this in colon, it was something like, of the 22 cases that might've had NTRAC fusions, 20 were MSI high and MLH1 hypermethylated. So they're really the subgroup. And again, kind of presents a, a treating dilemma because Pembro and Larotractinib are both kind of approved as like, you know, just like single, like used one at a time. Um, and our oncologists here, I think, prefer to try Pembro first and then Maybe Laro in but they're both so new that I think it's it might end up being case dependent. So we haven't had that many. It's also very rare. So that's a situation with colon cancer. There were three papers that came out like all at the same time, showing that it was like us, one in Japan, and then I forget where the other group was. But yeah, so it's always nice when something like that happens because it means that like it's a trustable finding. Separate groups are finding the same thing independently. You're all seeing it.
2: Why do you think the colon cancers show MSI high and hypermutated state, but in sarcomas we're just seeing fusions?
4: Why do Why are they MSI high and showing hypermutated?
2: Hypermutations with the fusions versus in mesenchymal tumors, we're just seeing like very silent genomes with just the fusions.
4: So specifically, I guess like with BRAF b 600 e There was a paper in 2014 saying that it's BRAF, you know, BRV600E and MSI have kind of been the chicken or the egg for a while. And in 2014, a group showed there's only one paper, which is always kind of like, is this really true? But this group showed in a very nice study that BRV600E basically induced genome wide methylation, including that of the MLH1 promoter. So it's this group of simp high tumors, so it's the cytosine methyl island things um and so it's in so BRAF 600 e caused it and it might be that this map case stimulation via a different fusion like so we saw interestingly some BRAF fusions in these Mm -hmm. MSI high MLH1 hypermethylated things so it might be that the fusion is causing genome-wide hypermethylation including the MLH1 um
2: but why doesn't that happen in sarcomas?
4: Yeah. So that's, when it, <laughs> that's the theory as to why it happens in colon. Yeah. Why, does, why it happens in sarcomas, I'm really not sure. See,
2: I so think they, that's fascinating. Like, you, get,
4: like, you know, a lot of people are like, I look at this group versus that. But it would be interesting to do the methylation array on a group of sarcomas that have yeah. fusions and see if they, on unsupervised hierarchical clustering, would go together yes. or they would just kind of go different ways and this cell of differentiation just isn't susceptible to methylation or something like,
2: so Mike knows I've wanted to do that exact study for like two years and been trying to get that funding. So he knows since we formed that oh. I've proposed that as our next project. So I have all the cases and I even got a pilot grant to do it, but I haven't gotten the rest of the funding. Cause that's what I've been asking. Like why I don't understand.
1: You're looking at, you want to examine Genome-wide methylation in trek rearranged mm-hmm.
2: sarcomas
1: or pediatric sarcomas,
2: yeah, and understand what's going on, yeah, because I don't are, get it.
1: Um, other than colon and brain tumors, um, are there what are other tumor types where uh, widespread methylation occurs? I mean, those are the two. Those are the two that come that come. So that it, you know, maybe that it doesn't occur in the, in the sarcomas, it has to do the whatever cell of origin or line of differentiation. It has to be permissive at MSK. What kind of like, uh, genome-wide methylation testing do you, do you do?
4: Before, um, we didn't have big methylation arrays and stuff like that. Now we have that and we're doing that on tumors. But before we used to do like, pyro sequencing sure. just on like a few loci in the mlh one promoter but now we've got a big array and yeah. you can do a lot of research and look at like okay so tumors kind of methylate this way for this and these genes are turned on and off because these stem cells are all, like something like that you know like whereas we wouldn't have that knowledge at this point in time i guess for you know we just haven't looked into it there was no we con-
1: about to find out
4: yeah, I think in the next few years, as um, we look at methylation, just like when we started NGS and just like when we built MSI onto the NGS panels, you start realizing a bunch of weird different things. Then you start seeing something from like a new light. Like, oh, it's not that simple. Like, um, I think we're about to see that with methylation. But uh, there's also like other stuff with NTRAC that's kind of weird. Like we found out, um, and specifically like MAPK pathway activation, like in breast cancer, um, we found that they're kind of like, after they develop um, resistance to hormone therapy, they kind of get MAPK pathway activation, including kinase fusions, and that seems to be common in prostate cancer as well. We publish it specifically with kinase fusions, including two laryotrectinib um, patients who got laryotrectinib, so they developed fusions like after after they stopped with their um, hormone so fulvestrin or whatever hormone therapy and you test the prior and it's negative you do the ihc and that one cell is positive and then on the later mets after the whole thing like lights up for the ihc and it's like lots of breed support for an intrac fusion or something so
1: and this it. is this is a resistance mechanism but does it make them susceptible to larotrectinib or
4: but they respond they responded both in like the pdx and then um and they also had a complete. Like it's in, you know, unfortunately, precision oncology often the result isn't forever, but it was like a sustained sure. result for a while. Um, that it was like complete, complete response in all the lesions. And there were a lot in the patient for a while, which is nice. Um, and so, yeah, I, I guess it did mean something clinically, even though it's another rare subgroup we haven't looked at methylation and breast cancer either, right? There's no clinical reason to do that. Um, I don't know, like, how if along with, like, hormone issues that would play a role, but it does seem like a piece that's often, you know, epigenomics is just kind of something that's understudied. And a lot of us have, like, our specific areas, and we already are so busy that it's not, like, it's, like, a high priority. Like, but, yeah, I think, as Jessica's saying, it's definitely worth it to see, like, why one tumor kind of is prone to this and this tumor is not.
2: I agree with Jackie. I think that's a kind of untapped resource. I know we're starting to validate our methylation array here for clinical uses for brain because that's been the one area that it has been explored, but there's so many areas that it hasn't really been or you know, looked at for not only tumor kind of identification and kind of methylation signatures, but also can we tell anything about using that as a diagnostic adjunct or a prognostic adjunct. I know there's been some work in adrenal cortical tumors in children and trying to use methylation to help with prognostication. And so we just, we just don't know yet, cause I think as Jackie pointed out, all of us are kind of busy on like one area and, and people haven't utilized it maybe as much as we could with using it on top of what we're already doing, whether that's IHC or NGS. Um, but I think, it's, I think it's coming and it's coming fast
1: molecularly inco- inclined children that are that are listening like i think if i was doing a molecular fellowship all these ancillary techniques right like ihc came and then all this discovery or we're talking about ngs came and all this discovery so how about uh you know more wide widespread methylation testing is on the precipice and that's where that's where the discovery uh, perhaps will will come opportunity knocks
0: yes
3: yeah. yeah
1: well it's happened again you've squandered another perfectly good hour listening to IHC talk
3: don't stain like my brothers
1: don't stain like my sister don't stain like any of these guys UNGS
0: Support for the free PathPod podcast comes from listeners who like it and share it with their friends. So go ahead, send someone the link. And be sure to subscribe to PathPod wherever you download your podcasts. PathPod is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not medical advice. As always on the podcast, any views expressed are solely those of the person speaking and do not necessarily represent their employers, their affiliated institutions, affiliated professional organizations, other speakers on the program, their friends, their families, their pets, or anyone involved in the production and distribution of this podcast. Thanks for listening to PathPod.